If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the July 26, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm Michael Taylor Gray in Los Angeles. Welcome. Tonight, we get the 411 on two movies on the stream, Broadway Damage and Girls Will Be Girls. Attend one of Liza Minnelli's weddings, courtesy of singer Sam Harris, and look back at a favorite afternoon with film legend Tab Hunter. But first, we travel across the pond with a new IMRU correspondent to get the dish from British comedian Rosie Wilby about her new book on lesbian breakups. This is Neil Schleifer in New York, and I'm talking to comedian Rosie Wilby in London about her book, the Breakup Monologues, The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak. Hello, I'm Rosie Wilby. I'm a comedian, podcaster and author based in London in the UK. My new book is called The Breakup Monologues, The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak. And the reason for that subtitle is that it takes a slightly optimistic look at whether a breakup can perhaps be an opportunity for learning and growth once the dust has settled and we've got through that really horrible, horrible, yucky, emotional and painful part. What was the inspiration for this? My podcast, which is also called The Breakup Monologues, which I've been releasing over the past few years. We've done four seasons now where I interview two other guests, either comedians or authors or fellow podcasters or interesting academics and people who've studied heartbreak and love. And we chat all about how to recover from a breakup our funniest breakup stories, and sometimes the science behind how heartbreak works. And you can hear all four seasons of the podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. Why do lesbians know so much about breakups? As a lesbian, I've been particularly interested in representing non-normative relationship narratives because even though so many things are universal about how we fall in love and stay in love or maybe don't and fall out of love and then break up but what's interesting to me is within the LGBTQI community 
sometimes even though we do fall in love and out of love just like anybody else sometimes we've come up with creative solutions for thinking about family and commitment and monogamy in slightly different ways that fall outside of the heteronormative narrative and because as queer people we haven't always had access to marriage and having biological families and traditional family structures we've sometimes looked at doing things in alternative ways the writer Armistead Maupin has often talked about logical family as opposed to biological family and the idea of your friends essentially being your family and your queer community being important and I do think that we as such, have slightly different ways of approaching relationships. And I believe that lesbians in particular know all about breakups because we have pioneered conscious uncoupling long before Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) And that's because, actually, if you look at the divorce rates, lesbians are the world champions of breakups. We divorce at several times the rate of gay men and have overtaken heterosexual couples. So we are the ones who know all about how to separate amicably because lesbian community was always a small community and you had to stay friends with your ex because you were probably going to see them. There's an old joke that's a little bit of a stereotype. It goes, what do lesbians take on the first date? A U-Haul. Now, is that just an American concept? Yes, the stereotypes that exist about lesbians and all the jokes about (laughs) taking a U-Haul on the first date. You know, I mean, often stereotypes exist because there is some truth to them. And obviously there are always exceptions to. But yes, (laughs) we are renowned for committing very, very rapidly. And then that does perhaps feed our rapid breakup rate as well in that we break up. (laughs) very frequently too but as I've said we often do that amicably and remain friends but I, I do think that these stereotypes definitely originate somewhere and perhaps if we look more deeply at heterosexual divorce rates 75% of of straight divorces are initiated by the woman so there's really something about female sexuality female desire female romantic connection that we perhaps don't acknowledge fully in a patriarchal society. So I I think there's something about what women want from relationships and how we are not always getting it. So that may be why you see, see women sometimes being dissatisfied with monogamous uh, patriarchal structures that, that have not been set up necessarily in female interests. So that that's sort of a slightly more a deeper, more political take on it. But yes, I do believe <laughs> that some of the jokes about lesbians have some, some foundation in reality. And I, I feel that I can joke around that because I am a lesbian myself. And I feel like I definitely have real world experience of that and see my friends living out some of those stereotypes too and we do we laugh at those jokes because we see the truth in them could you list some reasons for breakups i do that in the book and really really the main reason for breakups is often something 
entangled with sex. <laughs> sex is complicated. <laughs> and to illustrate this, one of the early chapters in the book details my experience of participating in a sex lab <laughs> where I was taking part in this weird experiment where I was viewing erotica uh, with different participants of, of different genders and my genital arousal and pupil dilation were being measured <laughs> during this experiment. You can read all about it in the book. The weirdest thing of all was that the control clip to calm you down in between the erotic clips was a actually a, a nature documentary, <laughs> uh, which some people, of course, might found uh, uh, really arousing. Um, but yes, I think sex, sexuality is such a complex area for human beings. And now we live so much longer um, you know, I think staying faithful to one person for a lifetime is less realistic than it used to be. And this is something I also explored in my first book is Monogamy Dead, which um, obviously this new book, The Breakup Monologues, follows on from. Um, so I believe that sex is the number one cause for breakups, either somebody has sex with somebody else. This is obviously within a monogamous partnership. Um, you know, within polyamorous partnerships, it, the, the reasons might be slightly different. But within a monogamous partnership, if one person feels a sexual attraction to somebody else or potentially acts upon it, that's usually a trigger for a breakup. We're usually fairly judgmental about the idea of affairs. Like I say, in the world of polyamory, having additional lovers and partners would usually be fine and be accepted and be negotiated and discussed. But in the sort of larger normative world, we definitely see sex as being the number one reason for breakups. But of course, within that, we do have some people who are asexual. Um, but even then, I think arguably you could say that sex becomes a potential reason for a breakup because asexuality is a spectrum like anything else. It's not completely binary. So I know many, many people who at some stages in their life feel asexual, at other stages feel less so and might start to have some more sexual desires and, and pulls uh, towards people they are attracted to in that way. Uh, many people, including myself, would say that they're demisexual and are only sexually attracted to somebody that they're in love with. So this is a complex scale. And I think even if you're asexual, you know, it, it's not simple. It's, it's complex to fit into the landscape in, you know, what is a very sexualized society. So you might find yourself in a phase of your life when you do feel that you are asexual and would identify that way, but perhaps, perhaps your partner doesn't. So that's I think that can be a tension. And I think the reason why it's the number one concern in relationships and the number one reason for breakups is largely because we live in a society where the dialogue is all around sex and it's all around if you're not having sex in your relationship, something is wrong. Whereas, of course, people in real day-to-day -day relationships know that the reason you don't have sex is often because you're just really busy, just getting on with life and putting the bins out and doing all the domestic chores and raising children or looking after your dog or cat or 
<laughs> holding down a job or, you know, which is all of these things are incredibly stressful in modern day life, particularly post pandemic. So there are tons of reasons for breakups, but I think so much of it is tied up to sex, sexuality, attraction, desire, which is unfortunate, really, because that is an area we find it very difficult to be completely pragmatic about. Are there any benefits to breakups? Once we recover from the sad, grieving and loss stage, we do have an opportunity for reinvention and transformation and beginning new adventures. I do know many women who've started new, exciting careers, new projects, gone traveling, gone and lived in a different part of the world and really felt reborn after a breakup. It's almost like you have to get to your lowest point to then sort of rise up again like a phoenix, <laughs> much higher than you ever flew before. So... <laughs> It may feel awful at the time, but it's possible. It's possible there's a bright side eventually to your breakup. What was your best breakup? Well, my funniest breakup is also, I guess, my worst and most painful breakup was the time that I was dumped by email. And I always say that I did feel much better about it once I'd corrected her spelling and punctuation. But perhaps my best breakup would be the one that was amicable and where I did negotiate more of a conscious uncoupling and we do remain friends. How can you laugh at your heartbreak? I think laughing at heartbreak is a good way of reducing the trauma of it. I have found that sharing my story with audiences at comedy shows has made me reclaim it in a way that I maybe wouldn't have if it just stayed secret and something that I kept to myself. So I think sharing is really important and finding the lighter side after some time has passed. Talk about the breakup you regret the most. I kind of regret the time that I got dumped by email in the sense that even though I didn't send the email, I, I regret that we had left it that long because the relationship had become incredibly challenging long, long before that. So I sort of regret it in a sense that I hadn't ended that relationship at a much earlier stage when I wasn't happy and, and wanted to. And I would have saved myself the pain of really trying to reinvest in it and make it work and then receive the shock <laughs> that the other person who I was really making a big effort by that stage to commit to and, and negotiate and compromise with uh, had checked out. So I, I guess I regret uh, not being true to my concerns earlier in the relationship. And sometimes I guess we think, well, relationships aren't perfect, so we should try and, and work it out. But it depends how, how big those red flags are. And, and sometimes maybe you do need to listen to them. What have you learned in writing this book? I've learned so much in writing this book. I've learned so much from academic experts about how heartbreak works, how it's similar to withdrawing from a drug. And that, I think, helps a lot of people to feel like they're not abnormal, they're not weird in really feeling all over the place when they are going through the pain of a rejection. That's probably one of the main things that I've learned. But I've also learned that nobody who is going through heartbreak is alone. There are so, so many stories that I share in the book. Some of them very, very funny, some of them very dramatic and bizarre, and I hope you enjoy them. Could we get a reading from the breakup monologues? 
Our breakups are vital parts of our personal growth, badges to be worn with pride rather than shame. If we can harness their potential by viewing them as opportunities for learning and healing, breakups can make both our future individual selves and our future relationships stronger. Perhaps if we can share stories and appreciate that we are not alone in our heartbreak, we can comfort one another. Our brains are in shock. We are withdrawing from an intoxicating drug. Yet in time, we will heal. Telling our story over and over, particularly among the comfort of friends, might reduce the trauma attached to it. Let's hear and soothe one another, eat chocolate, dance, exercise and laugh together and maybe even cut off our hair, go travelling, start new careers and reinvent ourselves. Let's revel in new freedoms. We can't know true joy without having had a little jeopardy. Thank you so much, Rosie. We'll be right back after this quick break. Dreaming of a Gay Olympics, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The concept of a gay Olympics is credited to a competitor in the 1968 Olympics named Dr. Tom Waddell. But in 1982, just three weeks before the first gay Olympics was to take place in San Francisco, the United States Olympic Committee obtained a restraining order forbidding the use of the word Olympics. Although the committee had not objected to the use of the word in events like the Nebraska Rat Olympics, the Crab Cooking Olympics, or even the Nude Olympics, Waddell lost his fight in a 1987 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. So, he named his event the Gay Games. Still one of the largest sporting events in the world, Waddell's mission continues to educate people through sport in the spirit of better understanding. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night, or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you. Hi, this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am Are You. body drive you wild with desire? Well, doesn't it? It's a very nice spot. Oh, do you really think so, darling? It does have a certain kind of style. I mean, look, it's very flat here. Not much hips. And, uh, here. It's a little early in the day for this sort of thing, isn't it? Maybe you just don't sleep with girls. Oh, you don't. Well, listen, we're practically living together. So if you only like boys, I mean, I wouldn't dream of pestering you. Well, do you sleep with girls or don't you? Sally! You don't ask questions like that. I do. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray in Los Angeles. 
and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. With Broadway reopening, it might be totes probes to stream 1997's Broadway Damage. Steve Pride was on the case. I forget about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday after Sunday. Cynics beware. Broadway Damage is a valentine to New York City and those who still believe in true love and happy endings. In this very romantic comedy, two NYU grads move into their first Greenwich Village walk-up and prepare to take on the world. Mark, played by the very handsome Michael Sean Lewis, dreams of an acting career. Much, much better, Mark. Great. You're studying with Norma, right? No. Do you think I had to take a speech class? Couldn't hurt. Do you think I read too soft? Too soft? Yeah, I went to see this agent and he said I might read too soft or something. Too too light? He said you read too light? Yeah, light, that's it. And I, I'd never want to say that. Because I've been trying to speak louder, you know, project my voice more. I thought I was doing better at that. Mark, that's not what reading light means. Meanwhile, his shopaholic roommate Cynthia, played by Mara Hobel, is determined to conquer fashion publishing, if only Tina Brown would return her calls. Do you think Ralph would ever let a season go without doing that great white shirt? Do you think Donna would ever let a fall come and go without doing that little black dress? I don't think so. Mark's best friend is Robert, a slightly nerdy aspiring songwriter who dreams of writing the next Into the Woods and settling down there with Mr. Wright. So whatever happened to tap dance face? Mark, I cannot bring myself to date someone who wears pink leg warmers. I don't care how nice his teeth are. What about that waiter? Which waiter? The Italian. Tiramisu? He doesn't even know I'm alive. There's always the grand gesture. Grand gesture? What's that? You know, it's like when you lay your heart on the line and you let yourself do something outrageously romantic that more than likely you're going to feel like a fool because you did, but you're going to do it anyway because you never know. You know what I mean? That's the grand gesture. The problem is that Robert's already found Mr. Wright, and it's his best friend, Mark. But before Robert gets up the nerve for the romantic grand gesture, Mark falls for a handsome pop star wannabe named David, played with panache by Hugh Panaro. So will our heroes find happiness with each other? You'll have to see the movie to find out, but duh. Recently, we spoke with the writer-director of Broadway Damage, Victor Mignate. Interestingly enough, I got the idea for this film at the Outfest two, or I guess it was three years ago now. I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen in 17 years who lived I used to know in New York. I spent a lot of time with one summer. He's now a big TV producer. And uh, that summer, we had um, he lost the keys to his apartment, and we climbed the fire escape of his building and broke into his building because he didn't have his keys. Now, I was all of 19 years old, and I thought climbing the fire escape of a building in Greenwich Village was just the coolest thing in the world, to break into an apartment. And from that memory of that summer, the entire film happened. More than anything, I felt like I really wanted to make something that was like life-affirming and positive and optimistic. Uh, because of the work I was doing in, in advertising, so much of what I was called on to do was really all about being like as hip and cool and edgy as possible. Like if I heard that word edgy one more time, I thought I was going to like lose my mind. Everybody wanted everything like edgy and like, I'm not even sure what that means, but like it was getting exhausting trying to like be hip all the time. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm not all that hip, you know, and, and everybody out there isn't all that hip or interested in all that hip. And hip to me is kind of like boring because if you're spending your time worrying about being cool, you're missing life as far as I'm concerned. And I thought it would be fun to make a film that 
was about a group of characters that really weren't concerned with any of that stuff. They were almost living in the past, in a sense, even though it was the present day. They loved show tunes. They were romantics. They, they were dreamers. And if I was influenced by anything for this film, I suppose it was really the spirit of musical comedy and maybe the spirit of screwball comedies where all sorts of silly things happen and, uh, you know, the guy gets the girl or the guy gets the guy at the end. Broadway Damage is about beginnings. It's about that time in your life when everything is so full of promise, from your first apartment to your first love. This is my final warning. Cynics beware. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Pride. Stream Broadway Damage free on Vudu and Tubi or rent it on Apple TV. The 2003 film Girls Will Be Girls promised stars will be born, feuds will be stoked, songs will be sung, tears will be shed, love will be found, lives will be lost, cheese will be sprayed. And Steve Pride locked himself in a small room with the three divas to file this report before the film opened 18 years ago. The place, Hollywood, California. The reason, Evie, Coco, and Varla. They say good things come in threes, or is that death? Nonetheless, much like the three musketeers, the three stooges, or the three little pigs, this trio of plus-size gals is taking Tinseltown by storm. In what's being hailed as the best 79-minute drag comedy of the last few months, their new film, Girls Will Be Girls, tells the story of Evie, an aging actress who's more lush than luscious, Coco, who longs for a child with the doctor who performed her abortions, and Varla, a big-bone ingenue with dreams of Hollywood stardom and more grit than a discount oyster. Nothing like that first puke of the day. Martini? Oh, happy hour for me never starts till after five. Me either. And this is only number three. Varla was just telling me all about how she came here from Arkansas. Right, to become a big movie star. And singing sensation. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, it's not as simple as just showing up. You also have to fill out the application. I realize how tough it can be, but that's why I have a plan. I'm going to spend every afternoon at Schwab's drugstore. You know, where Tina Turner was discovered. Uh-huh, except it's a virgin megastore now. Are people still discovered there? Yes, but mainly in the men's room by undercover cops. Hey, how you doing? This is Evie Harris. Hi, I'm the star of the movie, Varla Jean Merman. Hello, I'm Miss Coco Peru. Watching Girls Will Be Girls, so many things came to mind, many of them even pleasant. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Varla, although you... Oh, dear. Have generously referred to this as an ensemble effort. It, it must be gratifying to be singled out by all the critics as the breakthrough star of the film. Huh? Really? Well, that's wonderful. What critics? That's what I want to know. The buzz around my house is that I'm pretty hysterical in this film. And you're buzzed. Well, Evie, let's talk about that. You, you, you played movie Evie. I, I'm not really sure where the characters start and you end because you are Evie Harris and you play Evie in the film. A, a great departure. And, and you play it with what seemed to be little makeup and bad lighting, letting the audience see every last crag and bag on your tired, worn face. Why that unusual choice? Huh? 
Uh, now, everyone has seen me be beautiful in films. And uh, as uh, you know, When would that be? Uh, everyone's seen me be beautiful on stage in Vegas and in, in New York and the Broadway stage and vaudeville. Uh, <clears throat> but in this movie, I try to strip away some of the layers and tell, tell the real truth about what it's like being a huge, huge star in Hollywood. You are a huge star, and, and you know, big girls deserve a big screen. Are there any plans to present this in the IMAX format? Oh, that's exciting. Well, I would hope, but we're, uh, we're hoping for girls will be girls on ice. That's what we're hoping. Oh, dear. Hold on a second. It's my agent. Hello, Ron? Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I'm doing an interview right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going great. Oh, yeah, it's a hoot. We're all sitting here naked. No, he, he said he wouldn't mind. Uh-huh. Oh, he's charming. Yeah. No, no. Tiny, tiny, tiny penis. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Wait, he's looking at me now. I gotta go. Okay, I'll talk to you later. So many films these days are released at the same time as the video game version. Uh, are there any plans for a Girls Will Be Girls video game? Oh, sure, yeah. I know that most 13-year-old boys like to imagine themselves as aging women. This is a question for all three of you. Who would you like to play your character in the big-budget remake? <laughs> Susan Sarandon. Nicole yeah. Kidman. Me? <laughs> Why the <laughs> hell not? I got my agent working on it already. <laughs> what do you want people to take away from this film? Hopefully they'll bring more people and then they'll um, pay to see it and then they'll buy the video and we'll make money. That's what I really would like. Yeah, Ron, don't talk to me now. We're busy. I'm going to tell him what I want people to take away from the film. Hmm? Okay, I'll tell him. He says I should tell you that I want people to take away from this film just the idea that everyone can just love each other and be happy. Okay, I told him. Now, personally, between you and me, I'd like people to leave this movie and buy more Evie Harris products. Now, I have a line of perfume coming out soon, and I have a wig line called Evie Weavies. And they're fantastic for women who's losing their hair. Coco, I'm going to send you a couple free ones soon. <laughs> what side of the bed did you wake up on this morning? <laughs> Evie? She's just a big old haggy drunk. <laughs> See what I mean? We'll have someone clean that up. Oh, my shoes. Despite my keen journalistic powers of observation and our nudity, I was stunned when the girls suddenly announced... Hi, I'm Clinton Loop. Jack Plotnick. Jeff Roberson. Yes, they were men. I covered myself with a Dixie cup and ran down the hall to the office of the film's writer-director, Richard Day. Oh, wait a minute. You're saying that the women in your film were not played by women? Is that what you're, you're telling me? Well, with the exception of Jack, they're all men, yes. Actually, do you know what's funny? Every single female character in our role is played by a man, including when Varla has a flashback to when she was seven years old. We got a little boy and dressed him up like a girl. And there was a therapist on the set? The casting director said, I won't even send out that breakdown because it, it will just, you'll, you won't get anybody to play that role and it'll be very difficult for me to field the angry phone calls. But in fact, there was this wonderful little boy that showed up and did a great job. And uh, his mother was on the set and he was, having a, he was having a really good time, I think. Later he'll write an awful book about it, I'm sure. Look at me, then you'll see all around you. It's glittery and flashy tonight. It's all about Evie tonight. It's special and dreamy. It's all about Evie. So come and look at me tonight. Thanks for tuning in to my special commercial. Look at me. And what do audiences have to say about Girls Will Be Girls? Excuse me, miss. 
an opinion on the movie? <laughs> oh, I feel so damn sick and dirty. I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> she says that like it's a bad thing. But the truth is, on its way to the multiplex, Girls Will Be Girls was a hit at this year's Sundance Film Festival. It played to acclaim at lesbian and gay film festivals in San Francisco, Los Angeles, London, Miami, and Portland. Its trio of stars tied for Best Actress at the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen and Best Actor at Outfest in Los Angeles, where it also won Best Screenplay. For more information on the film, point your internet browser to girlswillbegirlsmovie.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. So listen to what we say. Girls Will Be Girls is available to stream free on Tubi or Amazon Prime and to rent on Vudu or Apple TV. Liza Minnelli was married four times, so it'd be hard to pick a favorite wedding. But for singer Sam Harris, it will always be the one he attended, an experience he recounts in his book, Ham, Slices of Life. How the world can change, it can change like that due to one little word married naturally like at any wedding all the attention should be paid to the bride and groom so i tried i tried i tried 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 not to stare at michael jackson but i just couldn't not he was wearing a rigorously tailored black suit festooned with velvet and sequined piping and a darling peter pan collar centered with a diamond brooch his hair was flat-ironed into a flirty Marlowe Thomas flip. His face couldn't have been whiter if he'd been an Irishman locked in a windowless basement his entire life. I'd met Michael on several previous occasions since the mid-80s, and he'd become less and less human each time, not only in appearance but in manner, his very person. The man was on his own planet, Michael Planet. His eyes, darkly lined in black, remained closed throughout the service, and his head bobbed and wobbled from side to side to the rhythm of a music no one else could hear. Occasionally he would titter to himself at an internal joke, showing his teeth just a shade less white than his face, and raise his shoulders like a five-year-old girl who just said the word penis for the first time. On the other side of the altar sat Elizabeth Taylor. She was wearing an ensemble that made me think she'd looked in her closet that morning and said, What shall I wear? Everything! But she was still Liz Taylor, and somehow it worked on her, down to the veiled, black, tooled, and feathered hat set slightly askew on her head. Or was she tilting to one side? I'd also met Elizabeth on many occasions since the 80s, and I truly adored and admired her as an actor, humanitarian, and one of the great purveyors of nasty, nasty, dirty jokes. But she was clearly exhausted from the trauma of the shoe ordeal, and when the priest requested we lower our heads in prayer, she did. And she never came back up. She never came back up. Ham, a musical memoir, 
the filmed version of the stage version of his book can be streamed free on Amazon Prime or rented on YouTube, Google Play, and Apple TV. We'll be back with Tab Hunter after this quick break. Personal Best, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The first gay games took place in San Francisco in the summer of 1982. The sports competition focused not on winning, but on achieving one's personal best. It was originally billed as the Gay Olympics, but just days before it was scheduled to begin, the U.S. Olympic Committee filed an injunction that disallowed the word Olympics. Their homophobic act created chaos and near collapse as event organizers scrambled to delete the word from posters, programs, t-shirts, and buttons. In the end, however, the controversy energized the athletes as well as the spectators. Addressing an enthusiastic crowd of 12,000 at the opening ceremonies, author Rita Mae Brown said, We're here today not to celebrate homosexuality, but to celebrate and affirm individual freedom. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hi, I'm Stan Zimmerman, writer-producer of Golden Girls, Roseanne, and Rita Rocks. Hey, this is Carolyn Hennessy, and you may recognize me from True Blood, General Hospital, Cougar Town. If you're young, you might recognize me from Jesse. And you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. The notices couldn't have been that bad. Sure, just needs a little doctoring. Don't worry, sweetheart. If it flops, I can always get you a job as understudy for my grandmother. Thanks. I've already turned down the part you're playing. Bull. Merrick's not that crazy. You should know, honey. You just came out of the nut house. It was not a nut house. Look, they drummed you right out of Hollywood. So you come crawling back to Broadway. Well, Broadway doesn't go for booze and dope. Now you get out of my way, because I've got a man waiting for me. That's a switch from the fags you're usually stuck with. At least I never married one. You take that back. Get your hands Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Tab Hunter's 90th birthday would have been July 11th. The author, singer, and iconic movie legend starred in over 40 films. In 2015, Steve Pride traveled to his home in Santa Barbara to talk about his memoir and the release of a documentary about his life, Tab Hunter, Confidential. When I count three, will all of the ladies in the audience please go, Tab, when I was young, he just was amazing looking. Beautiful California surfer that every single girl or boy would want to make out with. Mr. Tab Hunter. He was the embodiment of youthful American masculinity. Are you Tab Hunter? Uh, yeah. I think I've died and gone to heaven. Kids and the fans just gravitated to him. He was the all-American boy, and nobody sold that image better. How do you shave, Tab? With a Gillette Super Speed, of course. What do you like about Tab Hunter? Well, <laughs> it's quite a few things. Don't you ever think about marrying? All the time, Ernie. That's what keeps me single. Hello, I'm Tab Hunter, and I've got a secret. My name is Tab Hunter. I've heard of you. 
I've been around a long time. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning because this is a big life. Oh, my God. 1931 was the beginning. That's a you long were born. Time what happened next? No. You had a really rough childhood. I had a very abusive father. He was very abusive to my mother. And she left, took my brother and myself from New York to San Francisco. So we spent the first few years of our lives up in the Bay Area. What was she like? My mother was a really strict, religious German woman. She didn't put up with nonsense. She was a very serious person, and she kept telling us all the time, what you learn, no one can take away from you. And she pushed education, 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 because it's everything. She worked like a dog to keep us going to private schools. Your mom had a saying about being showy. My mother used to say, nothing for show. So what happened? I wind up in show business. She never liked the Hollywood hoopla. She only did one or two interviews in all the time that I was in the movies. It just wasn't her thing. She wasn't comfortable with people being in the public eye because it was too much adulation. And she said people have got to learn to divorce themselves from themselves. I was surprised to find you were very shy. Extremely. How did you become an actor? I was at a stable. I had a job out there on the weekends. I was about 14. And Dick Clayton, he was an, an actor, and he came out to the studio with Ann Blythe and was doing a photographic layout with her. And I used to see him out there all the time riding, and we struck up conversation, and I knew he was an actor, so I kept asking him a lot of questions. And he said, if you're really serious, you should think about doing that. And he was the one who, when I was in New York, underage in the Coast Guard, he got me tickets to see my first Broadway show. He was the one who kept planting the seed all the time. You've got to work. This is not something that you fall into. I guess your first big break was being signed with Rock Hudson's agent, Henry Wilson. Dick Clayton introduced me to Henry Wilson, but he told me, he said, beware of Henry because Henry's reputation is kind of strange, so I just think you should just be aware. And I was. Henry was a fairly good agent, but I left him when Dick Clayton became an agent because he was part of my family. My mother knew him, my brother knew him, I knew him. I mean, he's a great person. And Henry was so upset by that that he, Confidential Magazine was coming out on a story on Rock Hudson, and he gave them a story on me when I'd been arrested like when I was 16 or 17 years old for being at a party that a bunch of guys were at that were dancing together. You know, you might have called it a gay party, but that word wasn't around in those days. Henry Wilson liked to change his client's name. How did Art Galeen become Tab Hunter? Well, they said we have to tab you something, so that's how Tab came about. And I showed horses, hunters and jumpers. So they picked Tab Hunter as opposed to Tab Jumper. So you became Tab Hunter, and then what? The first big film I had was an independent called Island of Desire with Linda okay. Darnell. I did a test with Linda, and then I went off to Jamaica, and we did it in Jamaica and London, and I was terrible. I mean, really, really bad. In fact, I was so bad, I probably couldn't get a job for well over a year. But you improved. Just a few years later, you beat out James Dean and Paul Newman for the lead in Battle Cry. Merv Griffin, Marilyn Erskine and Merv and I were out having dinner one night, and Merv said, I've just read a book called Battle Cry, and uh, I think you'd be perfect for Danny Forrester. You should have your agent check on it. So I immediately bought the book, read it, reminded me of my brother so much that I underlined everything pertaining to the character of Danny. And my agent got me a, an interview at Warner Brothers, 
I did a test, did another test, did another test. I did nine of them. After the eighth one, they went back to New York and tested Jimmy and uh, Paul. And then they came back and said, okay, kid, we'll give you one more chance. And uh, I thought it was terrible, the last test, and that's the one that got me the role. As a gay kid, my favorite Tab Hunter film on The Late Show was Damn Yankees. That was a fun film to do. I loved it. It was the original Broadway cast. I was the only outsider in it. And Jack Warner bought that as a gift for me, as a makeup gift, because we'd had a big argument. <laughs> but I was thrilled about that because it was my first musical. And I loved that cast. I mean, how could you not love Gwen Verdon or Bobby Fosse or Gene Stapleton, Ray Walson, my gosh. Well, you've got to dance in a film. Bob Fosse is a pretty good guy to start with. <laughs> well, I told Bobby, I said, I've got two left feet. He said, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. <laughs> you had trouble with the director, George Abbott. He didn't want me from the start. He thought Tavoner's a little light in his loafers. I thought, oh, really? You know, come on, give me a break. Jack Warner said, I bought it for Tab Hunter, and Tab Hunter's going to do it, period. And you don't say no to Jack Warner. By then, you were already a really successful recording artist. How'd that come about? Natalie Wood and I were on promotion in Chicago for a film called The Burning Hills. It was a Louis L'Amour novel that Warner Brothers had put us in. It wasn't very good. The best thing in it was my horse. We were in Chicago, and this DJ, Howard Miller, heard me singing. And he said, did you ever think of recording? And I said, no, gosh. I used to sing in the shower a lot where everyone sounds good, <laughs> or I sang in church. And he said, uh, would you mind if I talked to Randy Wood about you uh, going to see him? I said, sure. So Randy Wood was president of Dot Records. He called me in. He heard me sing. He presented me with a tune called Young Love. I recorded it on a Friday. Monday morning, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard, and when I heard it in the car radio, I almost hit a palm tree. I was so nervous and so excited about it. And it knocked Elvis out of the number one slot. Stayed there for about six and a half weeks. You know. And we used Elvis's backup, the Jordanaires. He wasn't happy about that. Well, then I've got to tell you what happened after that. We recorded an album, The Dot, and then Jack Warner immediately called me into the office and said, wait a minute, what the hell do you think you're doing? I said, well, I was asked if I wanted to record, and I he said, we own you for everything. I said, but Mr. Warner, you don't have a recording company. He said, well, we do now, and they started Warner Brothers Records. <laughs> you recorded a lot, though. Lot I did quite there. a few albums and quite a few singles, yeah. In the 50s, you were seen as this golden boy that everyone wanted but you were going through so much pain having to hide your sexuality. I wasn't so much hiding as running away. Whenever something was kind of scary for me, I would run out to the horses. They were my touch of reality in that unrealistic world of Hollywood. I was very, very comfortable shoveling the real stuff. <laughs> is that basically what Hollywood is, shoveling the stuff? Well, I think you play the game. I mean, that's your job. In those days, when you were under contract to a studio, you played whatever they wanted you to do. If they're building you into the all-American boy, that's your job. If you don't do the things they ask you to do, either you're on suspension from the studio. Talk to Betty Davis about that. <laughs> she had a thousand of them. Either you're under suspension, or they get rid of you and get someone else who will do what they want. This is Steve Pride in Santa Barbara, talking with film icon Tab Hunter. Let's talk about relationships. You dated Tony Perkins. For about three years, yeah. 
Tony was a very good actor, very bright young man, had a great sense of humor. It's just very sad the way his life ended. The pressure in any relationship is intense, but to have one where you have to keep it so secret. Well, I've always felt that it's nobody's business. I've always felt that way. But you still had to hide it back in the day. I never thought about hiding it. I just kept on the go. It's hard to hit a moving object. Your big comeback, I hate to use that word, but I was doing dinner theater back in the 80s, the same time you were down in St. Petersburg, so it was a comeback. Your big comeback in the 80s was thanks to a queer icon and his film, Polyester. John Waters called me up. He said he'd like to send me a script. So I said, please. And then he said, how would you feel about kissing a 300-pound transvestite? <laughs> I said, I'm sure I've kissed a hell of a lot worse. And I'd met Divine before, who was absolutely wonderful. And having worked with Divine in Polyester, which was a great experience, it's because of that that we used him in our film, Lust in the Dust. Which I love. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, because Alan single-handedly raised all the money for that film. It was a script that I wrote. It started out as The Reverend and Rosie, and it was going to be with Cheetah Rivera and myself, but Cheetah was tied up on Broadway doing The Rink with Liza Minnelli. So then I wanted Shirley MacLaine to do it, and I uh, couldn't get that done. And then Alan, I met Alan, and he said, I think it should be a comedy western, and you should call it Lust in the Dust. And you should use Lainey Kazan and Divine as half-sisters. And I thought, whoa, what a great idea. And uh, he left Fox, and um, that was our first film together. Well, tell me about meeting Alan, because that's a love story. Well, he was at 20th Century Fox. I went in to do an interview with him about uh, having worked at Fox. And I presented my script to him, and he read it and got back to me and said that he thought it was a really good idea. He presented it to Fox, but they passed on it. And then we spoke about that, and he said, I'll leave Fox. I'll find a way of making this happen. He's a very good producer. When did you know he was the one? The one. I just never thought of it that way. I just thought, that kid is really sharp. I really like him. He's a decent human being. You seem to be a very happy person. You know, I'm a firm believer that somewhere under the pile of crap, there is a pony. Go for it. Do you think your looks hurt you being taken seriously as an actor? Probably, but people always put emphasis on the wrong thing. I don't place importance on that. I never have. What you are as a person inside and how you think, those are important things. The rest of it is a bunch of garbage. You're a really cool guy. I mean, you think of old stars like Norma Desmond and Sunset Boulevard, and here you are with your dogs and your husband and your ranch and... What advice would you give to yourself as a 10-year-old if you could just whisper something in your ear back then? I was an idiot at 10. <laughs> 15. Uh, still an idiot. <laughs> You're Catholic, correct? Oh, yeah. But you had a bad experience coming clean to a priest in confession at one Well, that point. was many, many years ago. Recently, we had a screening of our film in Connecticut, and only a few miles from the theater was my good friend Dolores Hart. She was an actress, but now she's a mother superior at the Abbey of Regina Laudis there. So I emailed the Mother Dolores, and I said, I'd love for you to come to our screening. And she came to it. And Rex Reed and I were up on stage doing a little Q&A afterwards, and he introduced Mother Dolores. She stood up and took a, took a bow. And then, like the flying nun, came down the aisle to the footlights, you know, the front of the stage, and I jumped off the stage to stand by her because I really love her, and I've known her a long time. And she looked right out of the audience, and I love what she said. 
I want to tell you all, there is no hetero, there is no homo, there is only love. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> she's pretty fantastic. I know Dolores Hart from King Creole with Elvis and Where the Boys Are. Did you ever do a film with her? She actually did The Pleasure of His Company on Broadway with Cyril Richard. And when I was signed to do the movie, I was sure that it was going to be uh, Dolores Hart. But they gave it to Debbie Reynolds. Of course, I'd known Debbie forever, you know, because we grew up together. You were on a lot of studio-arranged dates and things with Debbie Reynolds. I wouldn't call those studio-arranged dates. The studio wants someone to go to an opening, you go. And why not go with somebody you know really well and enjoy being with rather than some pretty thing that's boring. Debbie's a hell of a lot of fun. Always has been. And ever since she blew the French horn in the band at Burbank High School. And Natalie Wood? Nat was like my kid sister. She was much younger than me. And I really think uh, she's just a delightful, charming gal. And, of course, I was so thrilled that we were able to get Bob Wagner in our documentary because R.J. is, without a doubt, the most level-headed person you'll ever meet. And he never talks about Natalie. And it was wonderful for him talking there about our relationship and all that because the press has been so despicable about Natalie's death. But then the press has a tendency to be like that. What's the biggest misconception about Tab Hunter or Art Galeen? I don't know. Do you care? No. <laughs> Your mom had some mental health issues. Oh, big time, yes. I had to commit my mother to, to a mental institution for 37 shock treatments. Back then, homosexuality was actually a mental illness or classified as a mental That's illness. That's right. People forget how different the times were. Yeah, very so different. So talk about being gay in that period in which the word didn't exist. and We never talked about it. The only person I could ever talk to was Dick Clayton. If I had any problems whatsoever, I would go to Dick Clayton. He was like a father confessor for me. That really helped me. Everyone needs someone to be able to talk to, I think. What do you think of young Hollywood today? I mean, today, Matt Boomer can walk the red carpet holding his husband's hand. That's fine, but you will not see a leading man in motion pictures doing that. It's the same today as it was back in the 50s and 60s. In that case, Hollywood hasn't come around to that. But you will see gay comedians, characters, and leading people perhaps on television or something, but I haven't seen it in motion pictures. This has been a conversation with Tab Hunter. His memoir and the documentary about his life are both entitled Tab Hunter Confidential. This is Deep Pride. Thanks for listening. Young Tab Hunter died in 2018. Tab Hunter Confidential is available to stream free with an Amazon Prime subscription or rent on Vudu, YouTube, Google Play, and Apple TV. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email Steve Pride at stevepride.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org.
Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair up, put my lipstick on, in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, cause he made you perfect, baby. I was born.